So in February of 1998, my whole world changed because I became a mom. Yes, little Liza was born on February 11th of 1998, and I was so excited to take on this new role, um, to have the title of mom and to have this beautiful little girl was just so exciting to me. And things were going so well until we went home from the hospital. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I realized that my entire world had changed, that nothing was going to be the same from this point on. I was struggling with where I fit now, who was I in the midst of taking on this new role of mom. I came to find out I had really bad postpartum depression. I had never been depressed in my life before, so this was a little bit earth shattering for me and I wasn't quite sure what to do with, about it. I didn't know if it would just pass or if I needed to you know, go see someone or what I needed to do. And I was struggling. I was the loneliest I've ever been, and I was never alone. I had someone with me all the time. And I wanted so much to treasure this time, and yet I was feeling overwhelmed and not myself. And I kept thinking, if I could just change a few things, like um, we lived kind of down near downtown, and I thought, well, you know, I work at Grace. If I could get closer to the church, if I could be a little bit closer to where my parents are and where Jeff's mom is, um, may maybe things I would feel better probably. So if I could just change everything around me, change my circumstances, maybe I should go back to work a little bit earlier. Maybe that, that's how I would feel more like myself. I just had all these thoughts about how could I control this environment? How could I control the circumstances and, and the situation to make things how I wanted them to be and to feel better? And I remember distinctly one day taking a walk in our neighborhood with Liza. It was just she and myself, and we're walking along, and I'm, I'm telling God these things. Um, I'm actually kind of arguing with him. I'm like, this is how I think things should go, so if you could just work it all out for me and do what I want and I need, then I think I could find some joy and contentment and hope in the midst of this depression and my whole world feeling like it's... Um, in an uproar. And I just was telling him this and sharing with him my thoughts on how I think things should go. And he said something to me in that moment and revealed something to me in that moment that I have never forgotten. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. Because I believe what God was saying to me was something that Isaac our ancestor that we're going to look at today, our hero of faith, I think it was something that he came to understand very deeply. We're in week three of our series, Family Tree, that has us looking at some of the biblical pillars of our faith and moments in their lives where God met them in profound ways and the heritage of that faith that they have passed on to us. And today we're going to look at the life of Isaac. And he's the only son of Abraham and Sarah. He is the one uh, God asks Abraham to sacrifice at one point, and then it doesn't transpire. He's the father of Esau and Jacob and the grandfather of the 12 tribes of Israel. And interestingly, there is only one chapter that is devoted entirely to Isaac in Genesis. It's the chapter we're going to look at today, chapter 26. 
You have so much about Jacob and about Abraham, but just one chapter about Isaac. And its placement is interesting because it comes between two stories about his sons, Esau and Jacob. The chapter 25, right before chapter 26, is the account of Jacob exploiting his brother. And the chapter after the story we're looking at today is Jacob deceiving his father. So why is this story about Isaac right in the middle of two stories about his sons that probably happened sequentially? The stories about uh, Esau and Jacob probably happened one right after the other. So why did they stick this story about Isaac in there uh, in between these two stories? Well, what happens in Isaac chapter 26 has so many parallels to the events of what happened to his father, Abraham, in chapter 20 of Genesis. And some critics and commentary, commentators see little historical or theological importance of Isaac's story. As a matter of fact, they think, many of them, that it's just a repeat or a rerun of Abraham's story. But I believe it has deep significance that God has something more something different to show us in the story of Isaac. So we're going to dig in. Uh, It's Genesis chapter 26. That's page 22 in the Bibles in the room. If you want to grab those, if you're at home, welcome. We're so glad you're with us online. Um, Grab, you can also go to the app, the scriptures in there, or grab your Bible at home. But we're going to dig into this uh, passage that is fairly long. And I'm going to tell you there's a lot of info packed in all of these verses Um, connections to to Abraham and then connections to the New Testament. We could spend an hour on probably each verse, but I promise I will get you out of here in the next three hours. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so let's start uh, chapter 26, verse 1. Read along with me. A severe famine now struck the land as it happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham, your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all these lands, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. So let's stop there for a minute. There's a famine, as there was for Abraham. He goes to Gerar just like Abraham. Abimelech is the name of the king of Gerar just like Abraham. Now it's not the same person, but it's the same name. And God appears to Isaac just like he appeared to Abraham. He wants Isaac to stay there, stay in the land of blessing, stay there and rely on God's care. Don't go to Egypt to find security. Do as I'm telling you. And then God promises the same things to Isaac that he did to Abraham in Genesis 13, 15, 17, 21, and 22. He makes these promises to Abraham in all those chapters. He promises Isaac the same things. I will give you all these, all these lands to you and your descendants. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all these lands. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is clear that he is going to do for Isaac because of the promise that he made to his father. I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. 
God was faithful to Abraham. He will be faithful to Isaac, and he is declaring that directly to Isaac. I will be with you, and I will bless you. He says that very specifically to Isaac. Now, God was certainly with Abraham, and Isaac had seen that with his own eyes, but God never expressed to Abraham the way that he expressed that to Isaac. He never expressed it as a promise to Abraham. He promises directly to Isaac, I will be with you. The Isaac promise. It's one that will be repeated over and over, but it starts out as the Isaac promise. And this promise doesn't just mean that Isaac is going to, to sense God being there. No, in the Bible, God's being there makes a practical difference in your life. It makes a difference in the way things work out. When external circumstances seem to be working against you, God's being with you will issue blessing. God commits to blessing Isaac because of Abraham's commitment to God when he was prepared to sacrifice Isaac. God was also blessing Isaac in that moment. And the blessing has been there since the very beginning for Isaac. And he is declaring it to him now. God makes this beautiful promise to Isaac, I'll be with you, I am faithful, trust me. So what does Isaac do? Let's look at verse seven. When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he said, she's my sister. He was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought they will kill me to get to her because she's so beautiful. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looks out his window and sees Isaac caressing Rebekah. Isaac, why on earth would you do this? You just had God send you here. These people are taking care of you. He's given you his blessing. He's said, I'll be with you and I will bless you. And you turn around and do this. It's exactly what his father Abraham did in chapter 20. But in that instance, the, 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 uh, in Abraham's case, the ruler had taken Sarah. No one's done anything to Rebecca. There's no reason to believe that anybody means her any harm. So there's no reason for Isaac to do this. He's fearful for no reason. And he uses his wife in this idiotic plan. He puts her in danger. And he carries this on for quite some time. In verse nine it says, but sometime later. So he carries this lie on for quite some time. The fact that they were there for quite a while and nothing happened to Rebecca means that there was no danger to her. God had brought them there. Why would he bring them there if there was danger to Rebecca? He mimics his father from chapter 12 and 20, but again, Sarah was taken, Rebecca was not. So this was not only deceitful, it was unnecessary. And Abimelech discovers the truth. He stumbles upon it. And I have to say, Isaac's kind of dumb. Now, kids don't say that word, but he is. Why is he caressing her out in public if he's trying to keep up this lie? In verse 9, immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, she's obviously your wife. I just saw. Why did you say she's my sister? Because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me, Isaac replied. 
How could you do this to us, Abimelech exclaimed. One of my people might have easily taken your wife and slept with her, and you would have made us all guilty of great sin. This could have been really bad. Guilty here actually means retribution. This could have resulted in death if someone had been with Rebecca. I think Abimelech is stunned. How could you do this to us? We have taken you in and cared for you, and you put our lives in danger because of fear for your own life. Unwarranted fear for your own life. Isaac put their lives in danger with his deceit, and he had no reason to distrust his wife. She'd never been unfaithful, and he'd been taken in by these people. He had no reason to distrust them. So why is he so scared they'll kill him? It shows such a lack of trust, not just in the people around him, but Isaac's lack of trust in God, even after God's promise to him, directly to him in verse three, live here as a foreigner in this land and I will be with you and bless you. He did not have faith that God was with him or that he would bless him. He took matters into his own hands, took control, tried to manage his circumstances, and in the process, deceived and hurt people that were trying to be kind to him. People that God had instructed him to stay with. He didn't trust that God would keep him safe. So how does Abimelech respond in verse 11? Then Abimelech issued a public proclamation. Anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. How does Abimelech respond? He protects them. God protects them. He protects Isaac and Rebekah. He says, you cannot touch this man or this woman. God is with them even in the midst of Isaac's distrust and deceit. Just as he promised, Isaac takes the situation into his own hands, but God is still with him and he still blesses him. I'm not sure that Isaac sees those blessings yet, but I think he will. So God blesses him by protecting him and then he continues to pour out blessing on him Verse 12, when Isaac planted his crops that year, he harvested a hundred times more grain than, than he planted, for the Lord blessed him. He became a very rich man and his wealth continued to grow. He acquired so many flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle and servants that the Philistines became jealous of him. God's blessing on Isaac again. Not only does he protect him, he makes him rich. He allows him to reap a bountiful crop. Remember, there's a famine just down the road in Canaan, and Isaac is prospering. In one translation, the word rich is translated into magnified. Magnified. Verse 13, he became a magnified man. You can become rich on your own, but it takes God's blessing to be magnified. And the Philistines, I'm sure they're furious. Here he is, he deceives them, he lies to them, and now he's rich. So what do they do? In verse uh, 15, so the Philistines filled up all of Isaac's wells with dirt. These were the wells that had been dug by the servants of his father, Abraham. 
Well, they fill up the wells that he dug with dirt. The wells that produce all the water for his bountiful crops, they fill them up with dirt. And this is a big deal. They didn't steal the wells. They filled them up with dirt. They all need the water. This is going to hurt everyone around them. And this took great effort to fill these wells with dirt. They were angry and rightfully so. They couldn't hurt them. Abimelech had ordered them to keep them safe, but they could fill in the wells. So verse 16, finally, Abimelech ordered Isaac to leave. He saw what was going on. He said, you've got to leave the country. Go somewhere else, he said, for you have become too powerful for us. He orders Isaac out. Well, it's kind of an order. The first part, go away. That feels like an order. And then the second part, you're too powerful for us, feels more like pleading. Please just go away. You're too powerful for us now. And you've deceived us. And now everybody doesn't like you. Just get out of here. I'm sure Isaac is confused at this point. Okay, uh, you protected me. I dug these wells. They came and filled them up. And now you want me to go away. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to do. So in verse 17, he does, he moves away. So Isaac moved away to the Gerar Valley where he set up their tents and settled down. He reopened the wells his father had dug, which the Philistines had filled in after Abraham's death. Isaac also restored the names Abraham had given them. Circumstances were not good for Isaac in this part of Gerar. No one likes him. And he's ordered to leave. He's ordered to leave to go to another part. He's still an outsider, but he goes about just doing the work, redigging and reopening his father's wells. He doesn't get angry. He just gets to work. I think about those wells that his father had had um, dug, and him redigging those wells up. And I think about our ancestry, what we come from. And are we willing to redig those wells? Put in the time and the effort and the commitment to redig wells of peace and power and grace and wisdom and transformation. They're available to us. Are we willing, like Isaac, to do the hard work of digging them back up? Going on, verse 19. Isaac's servants also dug in the Gerar Valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But then the shepherds from Gerar came and claimed the spring. This is our water, they said, and they argued over it with Isaac's herdsmen's, herdsmen. So Isaac named the well Isaac, which means argument. Isaac's men then dug another well, but again, there was a dispute over it. So Isaac named it Sitna, which means hostility. Abandoning that one, Isaac moved on and dug another well. This time there was no dispute over it. So Isaac named the place Rehoboth, which means open space. For he said, at last, the Lord has created enough space for us to prosper in this land. So in addition to opening up Abraham's previous wells, Isaac's servants opened three new wells. Even here, Isaac runs into opposition. So the wells before have been filled up with dirt, and now he's finding new wells. He went away, he found new wells, but each time it's being met with opposition. His servants are met with conflict. And these wells produce fresh water, running water, springing up from the, the ground. It's, it's a constant supply of water they would have been very sought after. So Isaac names them contention because it made other people jealous. 
he names these wells, the ones that Abraham, he renames the ones, or renames the ones Abraham had given him, but he also marks this moment by naming the new wells so that he can remember. So the first one's contention, because that's what it was, it was contested. The second one is opposition, because he's facing opposition again. And the last one, the third one, is roominess, because it was there, it was far enough away from the Philistines to not be a problem. And Isaac saw this well, this last well, as a, as a testimony to God's faithfulness and blessing. He is starting to see the blessings all around him. And Isaac saw them as they were. He saw that, that well, that last well, as God's blessing. He saw them more of God's gracious blessing than the result of his hard work. Isaac had moved around at this point from place to place for two reasons, basically. To avoid the opposition. That's why he, he leaves when Abimelech tells him to go. And to find water for survival. He had moved around based on his circumstances. And finally, finally now, there's no opposition. There's enough water. He's got what he needs. Signifying hope that this was the place that God had designated for him to stay. He says in verse 22, at last the Lord has created enough space for us to prosper in this land. Let's stay. This is, this is, we're going to prosper here. He's arrived. It's all good. So why in the very next verse does he go to Beersheba? Verse 23. From there Isaac moved to Beersheba where the Lord appeared to him on the night of his arrival. I am the God of your father Abraham, he said. Do not be afraid for I am with you and will bless you. I will multiply your descendants and they will become a great nation. I will do this because of my promise to Abraham, my servant. Then Isaac built an altar there and worshiped the Lord. He set up his camp at that place and his servants dug another well. Something changes here. Before his move to Beersheba, Isaac moved around to avoid conflict and to obtain water. But he goes to Beersheba for an unexplained reason. He had every reason to stay where he was. He was going to prosper there. He had what he needed. So why does he leave? Something had changed in Isaac in the way he was thinking and what he was seeing and what he was sensing. Circumstances had previously or prior to this shaped most of his decisions, but now something deeper, something more noble is giving direction in his life. You see, Beersheba was the first place that Abraham had gone with Isaac after they came down from the sacrifice on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. Isaac knew that God had promised to give him the land promised to his father Abraham. I think that he had finally come to believe that through all the opposition over the wells he had dug, God had been guiding him back to the land of promise, back to those places where Abraham had walked in fellowship with God. I believe that Isaac went to Beersheba because he sensed in his spirit that this is where God wanted him to be. God had been previously driving or pushing Isaac through opposition. Now Isaac was willing to be led. 
And the decision was the right one because immediately that night, God speaks words of reassurance to Isaac. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. That same night, do not fear. He's speaking right now. Don't fear now, Isaac, and don't fear in the future. Why? For I am with you. Again, he has said this. I have been with you. I've been with you at those wells. I, were with, I was with you when you were lying and being deceitful. I have been with you. Look where I've brought you and know that I will continue to be with you and I will bless you. I made the same, I make the same promises to you, Isaac, as I did to your father, Abraham, and to all of us in this spiritual family tree. We have the same promise. I will be with you and I will bless you from God. He makes the same promise to us that he does to Abraham and Isaac. And notice then in verse 25 what Isaac does, the order in which he does things. He builds an altar, he calls upon the Lord, he pitches his tent, and then they dig the wells. Prior to this, Isaac stayed after he dug a well and found the water, then he stayed. Once he found sufficient water and was not opposed. But in this verse, it's the reverse. First, he builds the altar and worships. Then he gets to work. It's a lesson in faith and guidance. The place for God's people is the place of God's presence. The place of intimacy and worship and communion with God is the only place to abide. Isaac built the altar first, the place of worship, of connection with God. Most altars were built spontaneous, spontaneously out of, uh, of a reaction, out of uh, God's provision. They build an altar to worship him. Only in chapter 36 with, with Jacob, he commands Jacob. But all the rest of it seems to be a response to the action and provision of God. Only once in chapter 22 is the altar used for the binding of Isaac, the story of sacrifice. All the other altars are places of worship and remembrance. Places where the patriarchs called on the name of the Lord. Communication with God and worship. And that's where we should dwell. And that's where we're assured of God's provision and our needs. Isaac figured it out. Build the altar first. Worship God first. Abide in him first. And then get to work. Have you built your altar? The best place to be. The only place to live is in God's presence, a place of intimacy, worship, and communion with him. That's where you start. No matter where you are, no matter what's going on around you, no matter the chaos that is swirling in your life, you start by building an altar and communing with the Lord of the universe. That's where you start. 
And the altar I'm talking about obviously is not a physical one in this day and age, but it is the intimate space in your life, your heart, your soul to meet and worship God. The only space that you can truly feel his presence and know his blessing. We can try to take control. We can can try to pursue the things we think will give us life. But when we finally give up and rest in him, abide in him, worship him, there we will find true life and full provision. Isaiah 58 says the Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring, like living water springing up from a well. And Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. On that walk with Liza 24 years ago plus years ago, that's exactly what God said to me in that moment. Changing your circumstances, Amy, is not gonna make you happy. It's not gonna bring you the joy you seek. Taking control and trying to micromanage everything is not gonna make it better. God said to me, I am with you right here and right now. And like Isaac, Amy, I was back there. I was over there uh, when when you dug that well. And I was there when they filled your well with dirt. And I was even there blessing you when you were being deceitful and lying. I was with you through all of it, and I am still with you, and I have been faithful, and that will never change. The promise I made to Abraham and Isaac is your promise too. I am with you, I will bless you, so build your altar and quit trying to change everything around you because I'm constant and never changing. He said, I will satisfy you, I will bring you joy and hope and contentment, and I will give you a purpose I will make your life full and rich and blessed as you look back at how he's met you in your opposition or when you've sinned, he's been there and he will be there. Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Then build your altar today. Build your altar to him right here, right now. Abide in him, adhere to him, live in his presence. He is saying, live in the midst of me. You will find life nowhere else. John 15, five, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There is nothing out there for you. There's nothing for you outside of him. You can look and search, but you will never find what you're looking for. It will always be God. He's right here, ready for relationship. He will show you where to go, what to do, how to be lead you, guide you, direct you. He is saying, I am faithful, I am good, I am trustworthy, I am here. You will know my blessings because when you abide in me, what you want is what I want. What I want is what you want. You will see the blessings even in the hard and the ugly if you build your altar to me and worship me in the midst of all of it. You will know that I am with you and you will see my blessing. The place of blessing is wherever God is, wherever he is working in your life. You don't have to change everything around you. You don't have to take control. You don't have to change your circumstances. Just build your altar and get to work.
I've been with you before, I'm with you now, and I will continue to be with you. Do you trust his promises? Do you trust that promise that he gave Abraham and Isaac that extends to you part of that spiritual family tree that I am with you and I will bless you? Then build your altar. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, uh, thank you for meeting us here today. I pray that all the words that have been spoken, Lord, that are um, from you, I pray that each person in this space and watching online, Lord, that, that you have met them where they are today, that they have heard from you, that they have seen you, that they have sensed your movement in their spirit today, Lord. May we leave today and build that altar in our hearts and in our lives, that space for you to come and meet us right where we are in the joy and the hard and the beautiful and the ugly. That is the only place, Lord, that we will sense your presence and see your blessings. We lift it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.